Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Oh, mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hey there and welcome again to Democracy Sausage, a joint production of the ANU and PolicyForum.net based at the Crawford School of Public Policy. I'm Mark Kenny and I'm talking this week with one of the nation's most experienced and cerebral ex-bureaucrats, Alan Beam, who after a long public service career in places like the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, Attorney Generals and Defence, is these days Head of International and Security Affairs Program at the Australia Institute, not to be confused with the Australian Studies Institute where I'm located. Alan is widely published and his 2015 book No Minister, an insider's account of what actually goes on in Parliament House, followed a four-year stint as Chief of Staff to Greg Combe. Alan, welcome to Democracy Sausage Extra. In your long and storied public policy career, have you ever witnessed a time like the one we're in right now? Oh, no. No, we are in the time of all times, I think, Mark. Um, Not only do we have... uh, a massive threat to human existence arising from the coronavirus. But we have a kind of rampant uncertainty that's taken over not just the the, the, the great democracies of the world, but has also inflicted itself on virtually every other nation. So we have crises in health, crises in leadership, crises in the economy, uh, crises in public trust for government and its institutions, uh, and, and certainly deep crises in the way in which people are able to contemplate where their future might lie. So this is the time of all times and the time of no times, Mark, I think. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very cheery way to start this discussion, isn't it? All those crises. Um how do we know that's the case, though? You know, there's always a temptation to imagine what you're experiencing is, I mean, with the, the word unprecedented has been used an unprecedented number of times recently, uh, but there's always a tendency to imagine that, uh, you know, what's happening is is, is kind of pivotal, apocal, um, you know, of, of major significance. And then perhaps later on we revise that. But you can say pretty confidently that these are – this, this – um, constellation of crises, as you've just described it, uh, is is quite of a different character. Yes. The reason that I'm pretty confident in at least being able to depict our, our global environment as in a pretty pessimistic way is that many of us try to learn the lessons of history and we often look at the present in terms of our knowledge of the past. And what I'm finding is that bringing together uh, what I know about 
um, Australia's past from 1788, uh, what I know about Southeast Asia's past dating back, say, two millennia, what I know about China's past, which goes back three and a half millennia, uh, what I know about India's past, which goes back about the same time, and what I know of Europe's past, all of these things uh, are, are deeply uh, infected by massive events. But what we have at the moment is uh, a coming together of so many different sorts of problems and they bump into each other in surprising and confusing and I think very dangerous ways. So that's why, um, in a sense, what we're dealing with now is precedented uh, because we have the benefits of history, but it's unprecedented because we haven't learnt from history and we call what's happening now black swan events, but no, they're not. They're events which we might have been able to foresee, though perhaps not in the way in which they've actually occurred. We're going to talk a bit about Donald Trump um, further on in this discussion, but uh, just, just staying with this crisis frame for a moment, if the coronavirus is resolved in some way and the obvious way that we all hope for is is, is the discovery of an effective va- vaccine, one that's able to be got to enough people and, and that actually works and that happens reasonably soon, if that occurs... Uh, if the election occurs in um, in the US and Donald Trump is consigned to history and we get a return to something a bit more sane and orderly, in some ways we get some a couple of really big problems advanced in that process, don't we? So it's not like necessarily these crises are are going to change, uh, you know, are going to affect us for years to come. I think that's true. The the swing point at the moment does appear to be the development of a vaccine. And even just today, we find that, uh, announced at least in, in the Australian newspapers, uh, real progress apparently having been made by the laboratories in China. Uh, and, and like everybody else, I'm, I'm hopeful that we are able to develop a vaccine. But I don't allow my hope to occlude the reality of the science that has got to sit behind the development of a vaccine, bearing in mind that for the last 50 years, eminent scientists have been trying to develop a vaccine for that other coronavirus, which we know as the common cold. And that has not been hitherto successful. So maybe what we're looking at is not a vaccine that is able to Uh, eliminate the coronavirus from infecting human beings. Maybe what we'll be finding is a set of remedies that allow us to manage it as best we can. Which render it, for example, non-lethal treatments rather than necessarily... Or lower the lethality, which I think is perhaps the, the more likely outcome. So I guess what I'm saying is that as yet, we have no guarantee that we're going to escape the coronavirus that the coronavirus uh, may well hang around uh, and may well continue to infect human populations uh, until something like the Salk vaccine comes along, which cured polio, or um, the various vaccines that eventually killed smallpox and are able to deal with diphtheria and and so on. Uh, At this point, I don't think we should cry victory. Yes, well, I guess there's been a, a certain sobering uh, tone lately uh, as a result of what's happening in Victoria in particular as we speak where um, they've, they've, as of today, back into a six-week lockdown, uh, you know, the situation having gone rather rapidly backwards in that jurisdiction, uh, which is a, a huge uh, shock and uh, great great sadness to, to the nation and particularly to people who are living in Melbourne. Um but it's a reminder, of course, that we haven't a vaccine. We haven't actually – nothing sort of fundamental in this space has actually changed, even though we were in the process of fairly rapidly opening up the economy again. And that's going on in the US even as they go past 130,000 deaths. It's going on in the UK where they're um, – I noticed Boris Johnson has just announced a um, – eat out uh, uh, subsidy of, of people. So you can go to a, get a meal in London now between I think it's uh, Sunday and Wednesday uh, and you'll have that meal 50% subsidised. 
Uh, it's an attempt to try and drive uh, activity in the in the hospitality restaurant sector um, because they're worried about the vast number of people who are employed in that sector and, of course, all of the, uh, um, the, uh, the restaurateurs themselves. Uh, so, you know, you say, well, that's great, except that it's also going to bring a lot of people into the public space, into, into, into rooms, into contact with each other, and yet nothing fundamental has changed. And what's, what we get from this Victorian setback is a reminder that what happened there was the, you know, obviously some mistakes were made with hotel quarantine, but they happened at a time when there's this sense of the, 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 the shackles having come off. Uh, of us coming out of the crisis, but the crisis has not passed, and therefore, if the same thing happens in other states, we will see similar sorts of problems. Uh, you know, you look at the Ruby Princess, for example, or those kinds of outbreaks that happened before. They were lucky enough to happen during lockdown, to a large extent, and so you don't have a lot of public. Uh, you know, uh, contact in which for the virus to rapidly spread. And that's been, you know, the, the disaster in Melbourne. So, um, yes, it's a very, very difficult time. And as you say, without a vaccine, nothing's changed. That's right. And I think, too, it, we've, we're given by what's happened in Melbourne particularly, and I think the correct responses of both the Victorian Premier, who has closed the border, and the response of the New South Wales Premier, and of course they're of entirely different uh, political persuasion, but Premier Berejiklian in the same way has signalled a preparedness to shut down and lock down areas in order to contain the virus so that the rest of the community is at least able to survive, I mean physically survive, uh, as well as we hope economically survive if the support infrastructure is properly put into place. But it also, I think, Mark, um, causes us to reflect on some of the other infection vectors, um, things like uh, housing density, uh, the casualisation of labour, um, uh, contracting out uh, in order to reduce service costs. Uh, part of the problem, at least according to some of the commentators at the moment, uh, in the, the um, quarantine arrangements in Melbourne was not just that security guards were given very little in the way of appropriate health training, but they were actually part-time workers that uh, – and what's more, casualised workers, so mm. that they were people who had to show up for work, and if they didn't, they wouldn't be paid. So I think that what the coronavirus is going to force all of us to do, whether we're in the modern democracies or whether we're in autocracies such as China, is to look at the mechanisms that we have available to us to protect ourselves from each other. And I think uh, a great amount of thought will be given to that. And I'm pretty confident that that thought will generate high levels of energy and emotion as we start thinking about how do we actually exercise controls in a way that at the same time protects the, the rights and dignity of each individual person while it's protecting the rights and, and dignity of the community at large. So in, in a curious way, we're being pushed back to some of the fundamental issues that help define our society. Now, this is a good thing, I think, so that out of adversity sometimes comes opportunity. And uh, this is part of the conversation that I would like to see us in Australia pursue very, very vigorously. It's a really interesting point uh, because one of the things that it raises is your responsibility as an individual to the community. So the so behaving in a way that could not become um, uh, could not make you a vector of the uh, pathogen is not just about your own health it's about the health of your family but also indeed people you don't even know the point is that if you decide well I'm young and fit and healthy and I'm you know chances are I'd survive it may not even experience any symptoms or whatever um, in a, in a completely disaggregated or individualized society you might be able to be able to make a moral case for that if you think that's a you know, any sort of moral dimension at all, uh, but 
we're not in that space, are we? We're in a we're, we live in a community, and people need to behave in their own interests, but also in the interests of of other people. And that's a right that other people have. Mm. You know, we often talk about the individual in terms of rights, but the community has rights, and individuals within that community have rights that that uh, essentially derive from their membership of that community. And a pretty fundamental one is the right not to be infected by someone who's decided to ignore public health warnings. That's exactly right. And I I think, uh, Mark, for those of us who live in in the major cities and major um, university towns in Australia, we're very familiar with seeing um, foreign students and most particularly the students who are studying here from China uh, who very often walk around wearing a mask. Um, and I was talking only yesterday to some contractors that I had working at my house who were talking about all of these people walking around wearing masks. And I had expected that what they would say to me is, why are they wearing masks? Because we have really great air quality in Australia. You know, what are they trying to keep out of their nostrils? But in fact, what the 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 guy working at my place actually said was, Do you know why these people wear these masks? Because if they've got a cold, they feel that they have a responsibility not to infect anybody else. And and then he went on to say, my Chinese grandmother, who lives out near Braidwood, um, for those who are not Canberra people, it's about 40 or 50 kilometres from Canberra, she's been wearing a mask for 40 years for precisely that reason, that she feels she has a responsibility not to infect anybody else. So I think in, in what you've just said, Mark, there's an amazing issue about perception that is also brought into question. We look at people and we will make an assumption about why they're doing things based on some of our own assumptions about yes. behaviour. Dead right. Without understanding that other people's behaviour is very often conditioned by a whole different set of behavioural parameters. And I'd also just add to that that Personally, I've taken a lot of comfort from the way in which the vast majority of Australians have actually responded to what their governments have imposed on them. So different from the way in which many Americans have responded to what their governments, at least in some of the states, generally the Democrat states, have been trying to impose on them. And do you think that's a function of the sort of antagonism that Americans have for the federal gov- with, with the federal government, the antipathy they have for central control, the suspicion they have? You know, we see it uh, in even the right to bear arms, which essentially derives from this idea that people's militias should be able to resist their own government in armed conflict and defend their property if necessary, this whole individualist thing. Is, is that... Is that the kind of um, the DNA of the difference here of, of the character of America that leads them to that um, you know that suspicion of government? I think I'm probably a bit behind the balk line, Mark, as a sort of social philosopher. But um, certainly, one of the characteristics that I've noticed uh, from very many visits to the United States over my career uh, is that individualism is a defining feature of the US character. I mean, one only has to watch any of the Clint Eastwood movies (laughs) to see how individualism is front and centre of the, the, not only the optic uh, of Clint Eastwood's movies, but front and centre of the philosophy that sits behind them. Yeah, the politic of it. And, and, uh, if you, if you sort of think about the some, sometimes rather sort of sentimental or sterile debates that we have in Australia about what constitutes Australian values, generally speaking, the only point at which uh, people on the left or right can agree is that mateship is pretty important in this country. So that there is, I think, in Australia, a a somewhat wider sense of social obligation than uh, I think exists um, in in the United States. And I think uh, it's less evident in the United Kingdom also. Interestingly, though, there's probably less of an ethic of philanthropy in Australia than, say, the US, yeah. which is quite interesting. Yes, I, I don't really understand that. I mean, I work at um, at the Australia Institute, as you mentioned earlier, which uh, lives on philanthropy. That's, what, that's where we're funded from. So that we do have very generous people in Australia who fund all sorts of things, but we don't have a habit of it, uh, of, and certainly not a habit of public philanthropy, such as the United States has. And I guess in the case of the United States, very wealthy individuals are able to afford 
a sense of obligation to the community um, that other Americans simply can't afford and because they can't, it doesn't enter into the way in which they um, make their social calculations. Do you think the absence of a functioning welfare state, I mean, it's not a complete absence, but it's a substantial absence compared to ours and compared to Britain and, and other European democracies, do you think that is also a factor here, which is uh, in, in a sense that in, in Australia, you, if you may be mega wealthy, but you might decide, well, I don't need to help those on the bottom rung of, of the socioeconomic ladder because essentially we are already doing that as a society. We already have provisions for it. We provide universal health care. We have an unemployment benefit. We have, uh, you know, national disability support scheme and, and, and these sorts of things. So I don't need to do that. Whereas in the United States, it's, it's a pretty glaring absence. Yes. I, I think there is something in that. Um, it, in the United States, for example, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, invests enormous sums into medical research. Um, there is some philanthropy directed towards medical research in Australia, and we will find you know, the Smorgan Institute in Melbourne, uh, the, the hospital there, which uh, is a very important part of Melbourne's medical infrastructure, is one example. But what you see in Australia is, um, I think, a, sometimes a slightly different sort of philanthropy. Um, the the uh, State Gallery of New South Wales or the National Gallery of Australia, um, they've had massive donations from uh, very, very uh, well-endowed individuals who've been able to add very substantially to our, our sort of cultural resources in Australia. Uh, and, and I think that those sorts of differences often come back to people looking at their society uh, and looking where, to their own way of thinking, uh, there are deficiencies which they're able to address. And I think you're right that because we do have, uh, from before the First World War, really, I mean, the Higgins decision uh, on, at the Sunshine Harvester, where he really said that working people have a right to a decent life, um, that has sort of substantially been honoured by both the major sides of Australian pol uh, politics. Um, and so where the deficiencies in Australian public life lie is often where our philanthropists go. Yeah, well, we, we and, and as a result of that difference, we looked absolutely um, with disbelief at the passion with which the, the right was trying to dismantle Obamacare, the idea that there were 39 million Americans, more than the population of Australia, significantly mm. more, who were completely outside the health insurance scheme or system in the in the US, and thus were unable to get the kind of health care that they required. Uh, that that to us is a human tragedy, a human crime. And yet, for the right in America, Obamacare was 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 you know sort of creeping socialism or galloping socialism, uh, if you believe Trump and and some of the others. So. I mean, a completely different mindset, really, that we often, I think, fail to understand. We mm. think we are, you know, we often hear about the shared values that we have with America. We think we understand America. We watch a vast number of American programs. I mean, as you say, you you were just mentioning um, Clint Eastwood movies before. I could probably quote large tracts of se sections of them, even in the voice. Um, but uh, the th there are such sort of key differences as well that 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 frame the way Americans tend to look at the world. I think that's true. Um, of course, we have to bear in mind that um, senior politicians will often reach for the shared values um, cliché uh, for want of something else to say about how we actually do our business with other countries. Um, I mean, all of us uh, have become very familiar with the the sort of the patter about shared values with the United States and and only a couple of weeks ago when the Prime Minister was talking to the Indian Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, um, he immediately started talking about shared values with India. And um, I think for a lot of us who have been keen students of India over very long periods of time, it is difficult to see precisely where those shared values are. Cricket. Um, well, cricket may well be a value, but uh, it's more valuable than a value, I suspect. Um, <laughs> And similarly, we might look at democracy as being a value, but in fact, democracy is built on a value. It's not a value in itself. And so often the sort of the looseness and sloppiness of language, words like creeping socialism, for example, mm -hmm. um, allow people to hide behind um, sets of 
prejudices sometimes which may themselves derive from values. So um, while we in Australia would find it amazing that even some of the very poorest people in the United States would oppose Obamacare, that comes from this rugged individualism, which says the state has no business propping me up. I'll prop myself up. Thank you very much. Until the truck hits them, uh, they're in the hospital and they get their $2.5 million medical bill. Uh, There is often, um, if not a deathbed, at least a sickbed repentance Hmm. that comes with that. But short of that sort of extreme and horrific experience, uh, the difference, I think, between uh, many Americans and many Australians does come back to what we were talking about before, the the individualism of the United States. Yes, and though... Like you said about the masks and uh, uh, understanding uh, why people would wear them and how that would often be analysed from the basis of our own Mm. experience, that's how we tend to – it's no surprise, I suppose, that we would – our governments would try and build relationships on whatever it is that you can say are the shared values. Mm. I mean, obviously, in in the case of countries like the US and the UK, it's a language uh, um, commonality that we have. Mm. We all speak English. Um, in the case of India, that is partly true. It's one of the languages. Uh, it's a you know significant one of the languages that is spoken. But you're going to grab onto cultural overlaps, things that we have in common, because it is from there that you can try and build, uh, use those as as uh, foundations upon which to build other things. And so uh, you know, I, I can sort of understand that and. We're going to try and build our relationship with India on that basis. Funnily enough, it's worth about a tenth of the of the two-way trade of our trade with China, mm. with whom we don't seem to share a lot of values at all, as yeah. we keep being told. Yes. Well, um, I think, Mark, that one of the things that characterises modern political discourse is that uh, immediate reaching out for conformity or at least convergence of values. And I'm not sure that that is a particularly useful way to deal with the contemporary problems we have. It it seems to me that uh, a much more successful avenue may well be to have much greater clarity about what our interests are uh, and to talk about those. Um, I could well see uh, a very serious and lengthy conversation being conducted between Australian and Indian leaders about where our interests might converge in contemporary circumstances. I could see exactly the same thing happening if uh, the leaders, uh, if President Xi and, and Prime Minister Morrison were able to get together and talk about, well, you know, what are our interests and do our interests converge? And uh, for me, as somebody who's spent most of my life dealing with these things, I think there's an enormous convergence of interests between Australia and most other countries in the world at the moment, even though our value structures differ. It's an excellent point upon which to take a break. And when we come back, I think we should talk uh, about China in particular, the, uh, the raging debate. So let's take a quick break and be back in a moment. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we were just talking, just touching on uh, the relationship with China in our um, just before the break. Um, 
The relationship with China, of course, is uh, highly problematic and the subject of a great amount of discussion at the moment. In fact, to borrow from Paul Keating's famous observation, it seems like every galara in the pet shop in Australia has a view about how we ought to be running this relationship. I mean, there's the there's the hawks who who are absolutely convinced that uh, you know military conflict with China is um, sort of inevitable at some point, uh, if not with us, then 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 at least entangling us, uh, and. Um, and then there are the others who are, because of the binary nature of this discussion, are regarded as panda huggers. If you say anything that's about, like the sort of thing you were just saying a minute ago about convergence of interest, then you must be someone who's, uh, you know, a collaborator almost. Uh, is this debate, how, how can we get past that kind of uh, rudimentary binary? Uh, I think that the, the modern habit of projecting binaries and determining discussion around what I think are generally confected opposites. They're not true opposites at all. They're simply put out there to set the boundaries for whatever the discussion might be. And indeed, uh, and this is just sort of parenthetical, Mark, uh, the way in which we currently use the word debate um, as a substitute for discussion. Um, Debate is always built around opposing views, whereas discussion and conversation and discourse are actually built around trying to find explanations for things. And I'll close the parenthesis just there because, uh, to my way of thinking, uh, posing the the artificial binaries of choices between, say, um, our security relationship with the United States and our economic relationship with China fails to understand what security is all about, what economics is all about, what the United States is all about, and what China is all about. So we put them out there as being kinds of opposites, whereas in fact they're simply dimensions of a of a bigger issue, which is how all of us, uh, the human species, are able to survive and and live in a secure way, uh, generate prosperity, uh, generate well-being to the extent that we're allowed to use that word because many of the hard heads would say that's a very sentimental way of thinking about things. But in fact, what most people are looking for is security in that fundamental sense, human security. They're looking for prosperity. They're looking for well-being. They're looking for a bright future for their children. They're looking for optimism and hope. And If your starting point in a conversation is those things, you might have a chance of creating the very elements you need in order to deliver them, to realise them. But if your starting point is some misappreciation of book one of of, uh, Thucydides uh, and the Peloponnesian War, that war between Sparta and Athens was inevitable – mind you, that word does not translate into classical Greek – then you are absolutely excluding human agency – you're really saying that you are held in the hands of the fates and that uh, and a lot of the hawks are actually saying at the moment this is this, the, the war the, the, between china and and the united states is inevitable the so-called thucydides trap the so-called thucydides trap are uh, generally posed by people who don't read classical greek mark <laughs> <laughs> whereas i'm reading it all the time as uh, um, you know can't wait to get back to it um there's a lot of heated rhetoric in this debate as well. I mean, we had Andrew Hastie, the chair of the parliamentary joint or parliamentary committee on intelligence and security matters, obviously a very senior committee, as it's always said, the powerful security committee of cabinet uh, of uh, parliament. Um, he was he made a speech uh, sometime last year uh, talking about um, you know making a reference to the rise of Nazi Germany uh, and and a sort of a parallel there he was shouted down for that i think perhaps a little unfairly to be honest because i think he was making a point about you know waking up about watching what's going on now whether you agree with it or not i think is um is another matter but i don't think we should be in a situation where you can't make historical parallels or draw out analogies particularly because if it in you know it's the old sort of um uh, you know, what is it, uh, Godwin's principle, you know, whoever mentions the Nazis has already lost the argument. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I thought it was a bit of an unsophisticated response. It may have been an unsophisticated argument to begin with, but I thought the response was pretty unsophisticated. But any in any event, Scott Morrison has gone there again quite recently by talking about um, the geopolitical and strategic situation uh, presenting uh, an existential threat 
not seen since the 30s and 40s, which, of course, is the very same period and the mm. same same forces. Um, what, what do you think of these kinds of references? Are we, are, is, it, is it that kind of uh, breakdown of the international order that we're talking about, that kind of threat to the very existence of other nations? No, I don't think it is. Um, I think one of the habits that we have as Westerners is we look at the world through the lens of Western history. Um, and there's much in Western history which will stimulate our minds and we will find parallels. We'll say, yes, we've experienced this before. Uh, you don't hear so many people these days talking about the 30 Years' War uh, in Europe, which led to the, the Peace of Westphalia, on which, in fact, uh, modern European history is largely built, um, that the antecedents to um, the way in which we look at European history are not well understood by the people who continually invoke European experience. Uh, I actually think that reference to the rise of Nazi Germany is about the least helpful analogy in understanding what is happening now. But can I just stop you there? Because isn't it partly the reference to those who denied it as it came up? I mean, that's essentially what they're trying to talk about, the sort of not not just the active appeasers, um, you know, uh, Joe Kennedy and, 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 and co, but... Um, and I guess Chamberlain even to mm. an extent, um, but uh, the people who just in a sense turned a blind eye to the to the militarisation of Germany and to the rise of Nazism in Germany. Um, and the argument is, okay, it's not directly the same, but there are things that China is doing as a matter of course in a whole range of areas, whether it be explicitly in espionage, whether it be in the digital sphere, whether it be in the use of aid, whether it be in the direct militarization of, uh, of its uh, perimeter um, and its control effectively of, of uh, small governments uh, through the use of, uh, of, its, of its economic might. Um, and indeed, whether it be through its punitive use of its economic power, to, as we're seeing a bit of now in terms of trade sanctions with us or, or, or tariffs, um, that if you ignore all of those things when you put them together, then you're missing the fact that China is going to come and control a lot, come to control a lot. Yes, um, and many of the things you've just said are, are correct, of course. China is building its power. Um, it's building its economic power, it's building its political power, and it's certainly building its military power. Um, it is also wanting to cut a figure in the world. Um, it's not the first country that has resorted to espionage, by the way. Elizabeth I had an extremely fine spy in Walsingham, and uh, he was very successful. He ran quite a good spy network. Now, it wasn't cybersecurity in those days. It was just opening up people's mail, but um, he, they did it quite well. Uh, there's nothing new in all of this. Uh, some of the techniques might be, but the ambition, there's nothing new in that at all. I think the issue really is to understand both the causation factors a bit more clearly, uh, not by reference to how Adolf Hitler was able to persuade Hindenburg to have him anointed as Chancellor, then do away with Hindenburg effectively politically, mm. and then move on to the Anschluss. I mean, uh, these things are extremely interesting. We can learn a lot from it. We know that not only in Britain were people silent, but even in Germany, people were more silent. Uh, Austria, than, as you just said. Yeah. Yes, uh, than, they, than they should have been, that they should have seen that the the constriction of their democracy was something which was going to have very, very serious consequences, though nobody, say, in 1936, could see what it was going to look like in 1943. So It's much uh, easier when you know how it ended, isn't it? It, it is very much easier. And um, I mean, one of the things that I think sort of distinguishes some of the poverty of the current discussion uh, conducted here in Australia is that many people can't understand the difference between accommodation and appeasement. Um, I mean, we're all accommodating with everybody all the time. It's it's how you do business. Mm. Um, I mean, anybody who, who might sort of familiarise themselves with one of the loveliest, um, though difficult, essays that I've ever read, which is written by a guy called Isaiah Berlin, who is a, a really eminent philosopher. Uh, it's called The Originality of Machiavelli. And, and in that essay, which is a, an absolute ripper, um, he, he deals with some of these sort of philosophical and conceptual infrastructural issues that allow us to understand uh, circumstances as they arise and as they expand. And for me, at least, 
references back to the 1930s are vaguely interesting because it tells you about somebody else's reference point, but it doesn't help you really understand what's happening. It would be much more useful, I think, if we were to look back to the emergence of the Ming Dynasty to see where China might be going in the in the 21st century. Um, I mean, very few of us really have come to terms with the fact that the world's dominant economy up until the end of the 16th century was China. Mm. It was the biggest economy in the world by far. Um, now, it was a self-contained economy, as indeed most other economies were, even in the days of exploration and colonisation, as it later came to be. But if we look back to some of the historical models of China itself, you get, I think, a few insights into the ambition that, that China is seeking to realise. And that ambition historically has not been around territorial dominance um, the conduct of warfare to occupy other people's means of production, which is, of course, what Hitler was on about. He was on about the Lebensraum and on about how Germany could expand its industrial base by booting out everybody to the east, taking over their coal. I mean, he went into Russia to get the oil and into North Africa, by the way, um, all because he had to build Germany's economic base. China has never actually done it that way. Japan has had a go at it at least in the, in isn't the this, 19th, 20th isn't century. Isn't this in a sense what uh, people are warning about, that yes, it's not directly analogous because China is not doing it the way Nazi Germany did it, but it's learnt that lesson and it is doing it in a whole lot of other more effective ways. It's not just rolling up with troops and taking over and trying to um, you know, annihilate the local population or enslave them. It is. It has learnt from the experience of that and it's seeking to achieve similar ends but in a multitude of much more subtle ways. Look, I think there would be people around in Beijing and Shanghai who know a fair bit about European history and know about the the rise and fall of Nazism. But there are many, many more people in China who know about their own history. And I think that the way in which the Chinese government is behaving at the moment is much more consonant with lessons it might have learnt from its own history uh, than from lessons that it might have wanted to draw from European history. Um, well, that's a worry too, though, isn't it? Because that, that, that's the history of humiliation to some extent. It goes further back Japanese. than that. I mean, the history of humiliation is uh, part of the, the, the current narrative put out by the, the uh China's leadership. And you've got to understand, I think, that yes, there was humiliation, uh, that, that China found itself uh, at the end of the Qing dynasty um, just totally dominated by the power of the West. Um, but it had, it had created the circumstances for that itself. Um, I mean, such an event could not have happened uh, at the height of the Ming dynasty. It was just too powerful for, for that to have occurred, that uh, in many respects, its own social institutions, its political institutions, its economy, they all attenuated in that long period and left them open to the exploitation that they found themselves subject to um, in the latter part of the 19th century. So in a way, I mean, we're looking in the wrong places for the right lessons, I think. Um, I think we should be looking much more to how China has dealt with its neighbouring states over very long time frames, like two millennia. And you'll see that the pattern has been that China's neighbours have recognised its power and have accommodated it. Um, yes, they were tributary states, many of them, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, parts of Thailand, they were tributary states for five, six hundred years. They weren't huge tributes, by the way, because many of the tributes, not only the cash ones, but it had much more to do with the exercise of cultural power. And uh, I think that uh, the way in which we need to, to try to understand what is happening now is not to impose a set of European historical lenses to what's happening, but to look much more closely at the, the geoeconomic, the geopolitical and geostrategic dynamics of the modern global environment and look at it through the relationship between power, authority, economic strength, uh, the leadership, the strength of human leadership, um, and 
where nations actually have agency. And curiously, we're back to Thucydides because the bit that many commentators on the the war between Athens and Sparta uh, fail to understand, but which Thucydides actually points out, is that both sides had agency all the time and that the war was not inevitable. Yeah. But they were constrained by the stupidity of their own decisions. <laughs> yes. Well, that seems to be a common theme through history, doesn't it, really? Um, to what extent, though, is China also, uh, and this probably fits with that theme of uh, being constrained by some foolishness, um, to what extent does China bring a lot of the opposition on itself? Because it makes no bones about conflating its economic power and its and, it, and its national aspirations and its sense of itself. I mean, we see this uh, increasingly, I think. Uh, it's certainly the case with a number of uh, key exports coming from Australia to China, wheat and barley more recently. Was it, uh, was it wheat? Not sure. Was it barley? Barley, and, certainly. Yeah. Um, and uh, Tourism and students. Yes. Uh, so, you know, the, and th- this is um, – you know they can hardly st- sort of complain that uh, there is this sort of, I guess, this milieu of, of 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 antipathy toward China because it is not uh, shy about using its new newly gained power mm. to inflict damage and to you know pursue its uh, its national ends. I think there's a fair bit in that, but we do need to unpack it a bit. The China has a long history of extreme subtlety. Um, China is capable of very enormous um, subtlety in the way in which it it does its business historically. At this point of its history, though, um, it is it is inclined to a kind of unsubtle brutalism in the conduct of its policy, which I don't know helps it so much, mm. but it certainly generates fear in 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 the people who are all standing around watching. Well, it's sort of engendering its own opposition, really. It is. Um, that, that the spectators, whether they're in Southeast Asia or Australia or the United States or even in Europe, are all looking at China and and their 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 fear levels are going up. Their their confidence levels are going down as they see Chinese power being um, expressed in in unsubtle and and often ham-fisted ways. Um, I mean, we've seen it here in Australia. You, you'll recall, I think, that when she was pri- foreign minister, Julie Bishop had a Blood for Diamonds uh, meeting up in the Kimberley and uh, it was bawled out on the first morning as representatives of the People's Republic took exception to the fact that there were people from Taiwan there. And it, it sort of destroyed the purpose of the meeting. Uh, the same thing happened at the APEC meeting in in uh, Port Moresby, uh, where the Chinese delegation decided that they could boot everybody else out of a meeting with the, the Prime Minister. And um, even in something as as trivial as the ALP's uh, sort of uh, conference in Adelaide the year before last, uh, the Chinese delegation tried the same stunt of pushing all of the other diplomats out from a briefing that was going to be conducted for them. So this sort of lack of subtlety is, I think, disturbing for many people uh, who sort of view China critically. And it's disturbing as much in Southeast Asia. I mean, it's seen as the markers of a broader policy, though, isn't it? I mean, all those little things are emblematic of a of a mindset that comes from the top, and so it it, it keeps reinforcing this fear, this idea that China is not about negotiation. It's not about. Uh, any sort of subtlety or pluralism in its analysis of the world. No, I think that I think the way in which China is, is expressing its policy that is completely right. But I, I'm somehow suspicious, though, that the 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 root causes for current Chinese policy are themselves built around insecurity and fear. Mm. Um, that. China is not simply flexing its muscles because it's got them and can go around sort of stamping on all of the, the little people. I think China is has long been driven by quite fundamental insecurities within its own system. Uh, its treatment of its Uyghurs is not 
simply because they're Muslims, but it, it is because China is desperately worried about maintaining the internal cohesion and consistency of its own political expression. Um, the expansion into the South China Sea, uh, which has certainly got strategic purpose, is more to provide China itself with a defensive buffer than it is to get out there and throw bombs at everybody else. Yeah, I agree uh, with that. I think that's know? one of the areas where there has been far too much sort of um, heat in that discussion because it, essentially all great powers do that, don't they? They they protect their, their, their approaches, their perimeter. Well, I mean, I've never been to Puerto Rico, but I know who owns it. Yeah, and precisely. I've not and been Hawaii. to Guantanamo, very fortunately, but I know who owns that. And Hawaii. And Hawaii, um, and even the purchase of Alaska hmm. uh, from Russia. I mean, you know, we we have seen that, that nations do um, exercise their power uh, as much to defend themselves as to project their authority. But I think what is really interesting in the contemporary circumstances, and uh, we haven't really uh, sort of talked about the Trump presidency, we've talked a bit about the United States, but neither China nor the United States, for all of the power that they have, are able to exert authority. Uh, Trump has really um, dis discarded the authority of the United States, uh, which has been built up since really the, the end of the Second World War and Eisenhower's um, sort of determination with Marshall to have uh, a, a reconfiguration of the way in which the global system would work. We now call it the international rules-based order. Mm. Um, that's under challenge, uh, not just because China was not part of the group that drafted these rules, but because the United States has has given away its authority for no benefit over the last four or five years. And China has not been able to capture that authority because nobody in the world is prepared to give China the authority to assert itself. Now, if you were to have a serious discussion between um, uh, informed leaders, which might for the time being exclude the American president, but informed leaders in the world to sit around and talk about what are their interests what are our interests and those of China? One of them is to be able to do your business without fear of external threat. And, and so security is really a starting point. And I think until we get down to having serious conversations once more about how the security of China is to be met, how the security needs of the United States and Australia are to be met, and the deep integration of those security needs with the way in which our economies work, because without the money, you don't have security. And without a people who sit behind government, who trust in government, you don't have the confidence to be able to run either an economy or a security policy. Until we do that, I think we're in a fair bit of difficulty. So coming back to where we started our conversation, Mark, yeah, we're in pretty bleak times because we have neither the tools nor the capacity nor the wish to deal with what are desperately difficult times on, on any sort of basis of what the agreed formula might be. Yes. Now, you mentioned in, uh, in, in your answer a minute ago, you were talking about how some of China's assertiveness, uh, even internally, may reflect a certain insecurity. Um, Scaramucci, uh, Anthony, I think his name mm. is Anthony Scaramucci, who was um, uh, Trump's media advisor briefly before flaming out like so many other people have from the administration, uh, he has sort of psychoanalyzed Trump and decided that the man is absolutely full of self-loathing, that this is what is behind all of his bluster, all of his um, his uh, vituperative approach to to others, to people who don't agree with him and so forth. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned Trump because uh, this this notion of um, insecurity, of lashing out, um, of of essentially wrecking things, uh, which has really defined the Trump presidency. What what does that what does that say about the state of American conservatism? And and, and what was your what what do you think about the fact that uh, quite recently John Howard said in an interview with uh, Kieran Gilmore on Sky News said uh, that uh, he didn't think Joe Biden was a, a strong alternative, which was essentially code for I'm sticking with Trump. Mm. Uh, what I mean that that struck me as uh, some people will say they're not surprised, but I think given the destructiveness that Trump has uh, represented to institutions to to common decency to law. Um, 
you know, to the bedrock institutions indeed of, of, of the American settlement. Uh, that strikes me as, and, and, and indeed the point you were just making before about America's retreat from defending, uh, and ta- having leadership in the, in the rules-based order. I mean, it, it, it's staggering to see that conservatives, like all of the people in the GOP, bar Mitt Romney, uh, have just fallen in behind this wrecker. Well, I think this is consonant with the, the fact that we have serious vacancies in leadership positions all around the world. I mean, whatever else President Trump might be, he's certainly not a leader. No. Um, whatever else uh, the Prime Minister of Great Britain might be, he's certainly not a leader. Um, and one can look um, sort of right around the world and and just one is astonished to find that there are a few leaders around. I, I, I do think that Angela Merkel is a is a leader, though she's probably not long now to hold that slot. And in her own way, the Prime Minister of New Zealand has been a leader in a rather surprising way, uh, playing to much sort of softer sets of values, perhaps, um, that may be actually closer to the surface in New Zealand than they are in most other countries. But as one looks at, at sort of what is happening with conservatism in general, uh, I think I think many American conservatives are making quite a fundamental mistake in the way in which they think about conservatism, um, that traditional conservatives, traditional Republicans in the United States, I mean, going back, say, to Eisenhower, at least, in, in sort of more contemporary memory, um, tend, tend to value the stability of the national institutions and, in fact, to protect them sometimes as though they were museum pieces, but generally speaking, to keep them in good working order. Um, And you find that with President Trump in particular, you have an aversion to the the, the great institutions of the United States. Uh, He has an aversion to the Pentagon. He has certainly an aversion to the State Department. I mean, that's been hollowed out. Um, To the courts. He has an aversion to the courts. Um, He has an aversion. To even ministers in his own government. (laughs) Indeed. And he has a deep aversion to financial institutions. Yeah, and to the Uh, truth. Well, the truth, though, I mean, what is truth? Trump has biblical antecedents, I dare say. He does, did hold that Bible up outside the, the, the uh, Episcopalian very, very, Church in very Washington. Very pious, it was. Very pious indeed. But, I mean, I think that what you see in Trump is a kind of radical anti-leftist who looks to me much more like an anarcho-syndicalist than he does like a conservative. And I, I was surprised at, at the former prime minister sort of coming in behind uh, somebody who's, who's simply painted blue. Yeah, that's um, what it's about because, because Howard, I mean, going back to your point before about the settlement after the Second World War, the role of American leadership there in establishing that new order – um, that that's that's Howard's time. That is the time in which Howard came of age and and understood the world. And it was the it, you know, and we were talking about shared values before. It was the bedrock of his personal relationship with George W. Bush, um, you know, which obviously had <laughs> had its own uh, spectacular failings. Iraq being uh, the the principal one. Um, but for Howard now to be just saying, "Oh, none of that really matters. What really matters is just the team." Mm. is astonishing. I think an astonishing admission of the, the, the complete hollowness of conservatism in its practical sense. It also, I think, represents a sort of the current um, uh, indulgence in anti-intellectualism yeah. that, that, quite frankly, anybody who looks at Joe Biden would, would have hope for the future of American conservatism, actually. Um, I mean, Joe Biden is as far from being the, the, the kind of, of radical uh, that might otherwise be labelled socialist uh, as, as anybody in the Republican Party is. Um, and that, I think, is partly why he offers a fairly safe option for November, most particularly if the, the death rate from coronavirus continues to rise in the United States and the economy continues to take a big hit. And we'll see what happens. Um, I mean, Trump is down, but he's not out. And uh, we'll just see. But uh, frankly, I suspect that there will be um, a continual swing to Biden by conservatives because they can see the future of conservatism more handsomely protected by him than by Trump. Yes, it's a very good point. And I think we're going to have to end on that point reluctantly because, frankly, I could keep talking to you for so long on these subjects, but there's also some others like the like your book and um, 
uh, you know, the notion of how ministerial officers work, uh, sports, sports, accountability in a range of different areas and what's happening there. I'd love to have you back sometime soon to do that in a, in a more dedicated way rather than just sort of biting off a, a quick question now. Uh, so I'd be very happy if you'd agree to do that, Alan. Thanks so much for being with us today on Democracy Sausage Extra. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much, Mark, for having me. And for those of you listening, thank you for staying with us for the journey. I think you'll agree it's been an absolutely fabulous discussion. I'll be back early next week with another Democracy Sausage offering. And until then, uh, bye.